Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. And on this episode, don't miss our in-depth discussion with showrunner director Kenneth Johnson about the 40th anniversary of V, The Incredible Hulk, Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and of course, Bigfoot. Here's a sneak peek. But it was, Brennan was in a hurry. And um, normally to do a four hour miniseries with a cast of almost 70 people, um, you'd have what, four or five months just to prep right. you know, the whole thing, just to build the stuff you needed and all of that. And, um, uh, and four or five months. And from the weekend when Brandon read my full first draft script and said, go, until the day I said action was two and a half weeks. Oh, my God. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, they, wow. People, well, yeah, most people like you, most people in the industry go, no, you didn't. That's bullshit. I know. Casting, prep, location scout. I mean, it's, and, and it, it, it just people is one thing, but that's crazy. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was insane. And, uh, and how did it, how did it happen? Well, it happened because Brandon really needed it for February or thought he did. And um, uh, and he knew that I could deliver and deliver fast as I had in the past. But I said, geez, guys, you know, uh, so I said, OK, look, I'll do the best. We, we'll do the best we can. And uh, and we started shooting literally two and a half weeks after he said go. Um, and I know I obviously we had stuff that we were beginning to line up. I had always already corralled almost all of my uh, crew from the Incredible Hulk at Universal to bring them over to be with me at uh, uh, at Warner's. I brought along Chuck Davis, who had been my production designer on Prometheus and on, on the whole Incredible Hulk series and Bionic Woman uh, before that. Uh, Chuck, who always would tell me, is this the best we can do? You know, and... Uh, um, a brilliant guy, and uh, I, I, that's a whole other story. But um, so I had I had a team that had been working together for you know for over five years uh, that really spoke the same language, and a brilliant cinematographer in John McPherson, uh, and my composer Joe Harnell, who uh, and I knew exactly where I wanted to go with the music and all. Um, so I was had begun to line things up, but it wasn't until Brandon said go that I could say, okay, move everybody in here. Let's start the casting. Let's start the location scouting and. Uh, and uh, and this was in a day where there were no cell phones. To, they could show you pictures. The you know they'd have to go take the pictures and bring them back, or they'd have to drag you out to the location. So we're doing all of that and, and casting in the afternoons. Uh, and, and in many cases, I, I hired the first actor that they brought me because they happened to hit the ball exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> anymore, they tell everybody else they can go home. So subscribe today at trexpressplus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck Seventy Eight. Fire the rockets. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, this is Mark Elton. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are 
the inglorious Trexperts. And it's a whole new year here on the Trexperts. And we are so, so excited. Um, we had it. We're we had, back. We're back, we're, baby. We're back. We, we, we've managed to get through the uh, holiday countdown and hopefully you have as well. And, um, you know, we'll just, uh, you know, um, keep on keeping on with these great episodes. And well, it's uh, all, it's almost time for us to start recording next year's holiday special. Well, so. you, because of course I will have retired. Right. <laughs> I, maybe we can bring you back for the holiday special. Who knows? Yeah, I would like that. I would like that. I would like that. So, and, uh, you know, knowing me, once I hear a few of the new guests, uh, the new hosts, I may have to come right. back uh, because I'm, I'm not happy with their quality. That's right. <laughs> so, but there are plenty of people who I'm sure are are lining up to take my job. Well, I, I keep uh, I keep you know telling Patrick Stewart to stop bothering me <laughs> uh, because we're we're still figuring out what's going to happen with the Trexperts. So be patient. Uh, <laughs> he he's not patient though. <laughs> um. Okay. So uh, here we are. We we we. we um, we had a great experience. This is we're, we're very lucky. We we had a great time with uh, David Gerald at the um, Columbus, Ohio Galaxy Con that we did uh, in December of last year. Yeah, uh, we were invited by Mike Broder and his team uh, to bring the Inglorious Live Tour on uh, to Galaxy Con, and uh, honestly, we'd never been there. Uh, and what are yeah, we? And we hadn't board? actually done anything like that before, you know. Uh, much like uh, the Corleone family with a partnership with a friendly government in Cuba. Um, <laughs> we had a partnership with a friendly uh, con uh, in Columbus, and it, uh, it worked out really nicely, actually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, we, we, had great, we had a great time, and we did some great panels. Some of which were recorded, some of which weren't, unfortunately. Right. And, and we, um, had, uh, we had some good dinners, uh, none of which were recorded. Yes, and someone did not get hit by any scooters. In fact, there was a notable dearth of scooters, unlike in Vegas, which I found very attractive about Scooter Ban 2022. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. We heard the big highlight was uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger statue uh, at the um, convention center, but I don't think that was the highlight for me. What was the highlight for you? Um, well, I got to be honest. We had an amazing dinner at Hyde Park Steakhouse. Uh, wonderful, wonderful service, great steak, terrific French onion soup. And the, the company wasn't too shabby either. Wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, you know, some uh, actors from various uh, shows. Yeah, uh, we were joining. You, you know, I don't know if you remember that miniseries, North and South. Sure. Where the actors from North and South joined us, a guy named John Frakes, Jonathan Frakes. And uh, of course, um, the guest, very popular guest star on Breaking Bad. Um, uh, John Delancey was there, right? Right. And, Christian Ritter's uh, dad. But the, the the true highlight, of course, was the star of uh, the hit film Megaforce. Yeah, Barry, Barry Boswick was uh, was joining us as well. So that that was a it was you know, practically a whole Merv Griffin show, is what it was. <laughs> it was. It was. It was Merv. Ooh, I like we thing. have the we have the star of the great Megaforce with us tonight, Barry Boswick. <laughs> uh, I, I like to think it was more like Dick Cavett, but uh, but. You know, it was definitely not Tom Snyder. That's for sure. No, nobody, no. nobody fell asleep that night, and no one was smoking. Okay, now I just have to tell you, we do not have a recording of that dinner. No, and nor are we. There's a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> nor are we going to say anything more about the dinner, other than the fact that the food was great. Food the was great, great, and, and was, the company was. It was amazing. 
yeah yeah we had, we had a great we had a great time and uh uh you know um obviously i've talked about uh john on the show before i've always said he's a he's a wonderful guy he is i never really spent any time with delancey who um i found equally delightful and yeah. of course boswick is a a, a ma- is he's amazing. a hoot He's a hoot. I was going to say a hoot. And he's uh, he's in my documentary on 1982, talking about Megaforce. Uh, but um, we did that remotely. We had interviewed him because he was uh, um, on the other side of the country on the East Coast, and we were filming on the West Coast. This was during the height of the pandemic. So right. I never actually met him in person. So this that was a thrill, and he is just uh, so much fun. So anyway, um, that was a great dinner. Um, and uh, we did a couple of panels at GalaxyCon. One of them was in Glorious uh, Trexpress Live, which we'll be bringing to you in a couple of weeks. Um, we also brought, uh, we did a great panel with, um, uh, um, who did we, who did we interview that first day? Oh, uh, we did Barry it was Laura, Laura Banks. L- Laura Banks. Of course, we had Laura Banks on the show. Laura was there. Uh, we talked about, uh, but I think I can do it. We talked about Wrath right. of Khan and some uh, some great Laura Banks stories. Of course, those of you who heard the listened to the podcast have heard Laura on the show, and um, we talked about some of the same some of this, her new memoir, uh, The Wrath of Blonde, and and a bunch of other fun stuff with Laura, who's always a delight. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the one of the thrills, though, of course, was um, we had the great Terry Farrell uh, uh, um, next to us at our our booth, and and. Right. Uh, we were able to spend some time. Just the facts, Dax was our panel, right? And um, I've always talked about how, you know, way back in the day, I used to interview her for Cinefantastic and always found her to be just the most down-to-earth, funny, charming person. And uh, certainly that was the case when we sat down with her at uh, GalaxyCon. Yeah, she was uh, uh, dynamite. And, uh, you know, she she knows how to work the crowd and uh, and uh, work the moderators. And uh, it was uh, all really, really fun. And uh, unfortunately, it's not recorded. Yeah, it, you know, we, we were under the impression that everything was being recorded for posterity. And we asked for the recording for the um, for the show. We found out that, that they didn't have recording set up in that room. Apparently, it was too hot to record. Well, you know, it's probably for the best. He was yeah. very candid, and there's some things said that were probably best not to to, to air uh, in mixed company. But um, she the, was pantomiming uh, as a cat. Let's just say that she was <laughs> pantomiming as a cat. To which I responded, "Well, I didn't know we were talking to Terry Farrell," <laughs> which was great. Darren, <laughs> I have to say, was so fantastic, so on on. Uh, on point, as they say, I, I had I had the flirt meter on one hundred and sixty percent. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was off the charts. Yeah. 20, 20 AUs in diameter. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was uh, she. She was just uh, uh, wonderful, and um, you know, we kept hearing about this um, this North Market. Apparently, it's this very special thing at the right. convention at the North Market. Everybody said you got to go there. It's like. Quincy Market, Faneuil Hall, and Boston, and like the Farmers Market in Los right. Angeles, and it's yes. this remarkable place. And you can't go to Columbus without going to the North Market. Well, let me tell you, we went twice. If, he, if you can find it, and if it's open, it's fine. It's, it's easier to find the A Team than it is to find this right. place open. We went twice, and they were closed. We finally, a third time, was not the charm because we went, and it was fine. It's it fine. was fine. Nothing special. It's like a farmer's market with the various uh, types of foods, uh, all of them uh, sort of uh, wonderfully average. And I got to tell you, not a lot of bottled water. Every time I ask for bottled water, nobody had bottled water. They all want to give me tap water. 
I don't like that. I don't want the tap water. You know, I, uh, Midwesterners are Midwesterners are a uh, are a stout group, and they can handle bottled, uh, they can handle uh, tap water better than most people can. So I, I don't know because I've never been to that city. I don't know what their tap water is like. I wanted the bottled water. Very hard to come by. Well, very hard to come by. You're so a, that was a problem. You're a you're a particular uh, uh, consumer of waters. So, I am with a particular set of skills. I should have right. been a, a water sommelier in another life. Um, <laughs> the way of water. You know what place? <laughs> you know what I like? <laughs> you know what I? We had a good lunch at Bear Burger. That was a that was a good yeah, place. That was good too. And the funny thing is, you know, all that we've learned, uh, we'll be able to put to good use next year when we return because they've scheduled the show for December first to the third, two thousand twenty-three, when we'll be making our triumphant return to uh columbus ohio but i thought then, you'd retired by that time oh well i didn't say i was retiring for the conventions well you know it's completely implied no that's I mean, true you know if you want to be part of the trexperts that's fine but if you don't then i don't see why you should be benefiting from being well, part I, of the I'm, I'm there in my capacity as an author and a showrunner and the many other fine uh-huh. things that I do. And uh-huh. uh, maybe I'll have to have my own booth. And I won't be at the Trex. Maybe, booth, maybe. You can be there with your, your new co-host. That's right. Whoever that, you know, Patrick Stewart and uh, and John Delancey, uh, wow. who will be vying for the, uh, the new co-host position. That said, I do have exciting uh, news for some of our friends on the East Coast. Uh, Darren and myself uh, will be uh, returning to uh, Richmond, Virginia, on March 24th to 26th, where we'll be appearing at GalaxyCon. Uh, with a bonus. We have a bonus. And it rhymes with Thriller. It's none other than Miller. Ashley Miller will be joining the Trexperts on the Inglorious Live 2023 tour. How exciting is that? It's uh, it's great. And uh, Ashley always uh, adds a bit of uh, spice and... Uh, and uh, non sequitur into uh, the Trexperts podcast that is uh, that is uh, cherished by all. I got a new way we can open. We can open, Ray. It's Miller time. No, it's not going to work. I think we ought to workshop that a little more. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll think uh, about that. You know, twinkle, twinkle, Miller Kane. Mm, okay, we're going to get back. A little we're obtuse. Gonna, we're gonna have, obtuse? Yeah. Are you calling me obtuse? I'm just, you know, you're gonna you're gonna spend so much time in the uh, in solitude that you're not gonna know what hit you, man. You know, I got to tell you, I think Bob Gutton should have been on our list of. Uh, I know we're still talking about this stupid countdown, but Bob, Gutton, how did we not have Bob Gutton on our countdown? Well, because Bob Gutton is not a character. See, well, you know, the you need to one. you need to name his character. Well, well, who did he play in the wounded? It was see, uh, that's the problem because we don't know his name. You can't remember. If you can't remember his name, he can't go on the list. Well, it's not like he died, drinks a Cheers. He drinks a Ten Forward. Well, yeah, everybody doesn't know your name at Ten Forward. They know your name at Cheers. Uh, so um, what was his name? Yeah, Commander, see. Captain, yeah. Captain, Captain. Yeah. Captain Bob Cotton. Captain Shawshank. No? No? I'm afraid not, Mark. So Darren, myself, Mark A. Altman, and the great... Ashley, Ashley Edward e. Miller. Miller will all be at GalaxyCon in Richmond 2023, March 24th to the 26th. And to find out more, you can go to galaxycon.com. But if you want to see what was happening at GalaxyCon Columbus, Ohio last December, then look no further because Darren and I are about to be joined by author, 
writer, curmudgeon. Raconteur. Um, raconteur, absolutely. David Gerald. Now, of course, David Gerald was uh, the youngest writer to, uh, he was like the Alan Spencer of Star Trek. He started as a very young, uh, young writer. He um, was able to uh, uh, interest Gene Kuhn in his story. A funny thing happened. A fuzzy thing happened on fuzzy the way. Fuzzy thing happened, yes. And, uh, and it ended up becoming one of Star Trek's most popular episodes, The Trouble Tribbles. Most beloved did. by everyone, but Gene Roddenberry, apparently. Yeah. He later on did because that was the Omega Glory, and right. uh, then he um, he he did a rewrite on I Mud. He uh, has story credit on um, the Cloudminders, which was based on his script uh, uh, Castles in the Sands in the Sky, Castles in the Sky, and uh, of course went on to write several episodes of the animated series. He uh, was a story editor on Land of the Lost and wrote many acclaimed novels: uh, The War Against the Couture, The Man Who Folded Himself, The Martian Child, and. Uh, was a lifetime friend with the great Harlan Allison, among other things. And uh, uh, David, it's interesting because I think David's mellowed over the years. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, yeah, he used to be the uh, uh, equal or uh, or more grumpy than Harlan. Um, but, uh, you know, David was out there uh, fighting the good fight of uh, carrying the torch for uh, TOS and uh, certainly uh, wrote a couple of books on uh, on the the world of Star Trek and the making of Trouble with Tribbles. And, uh, you know, I think that that might have added to sort of the uh, the feelings between he and Gene Roddenberry. I think uh, both of them were very possessive of their own experience on the show. And uh, that uh, that came to a head several times uh, between uh, between Gene's feelings about it, and of course uh, the activities of his lawyer that uh, David uh, still uh, speaks with uh, with uh, very harsh words. Well, I think David uh, was a super fan, much Absolutely. you know of Star Trek. Um, it led to you know multiple books. The World of Star Trek was a book we all read as kids. It celebrate unlike the making of Star Trek. It was less an insider account than a, a celebration yeah. of, of what Star Trek had become and was becoming. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, but he, he puts a lot of thought and articulates in the book very well what he thinks Star Trek could do better if it was ever to come back to television. Right. He talks about the captain not beaming down with the way. These are all things that he brought up in the writer's room or it wasn't really a writer's room, but when they were conceiving right. of the Bible for the next generation, and it can only be one great bird. It can only be one king. Yeah. And I think the king wasn't necessarily interested in, you know, uh, you know, because people feel passionately about it. Ultimately the showrunner decides, but some people can't accept that there are other people who are pushing and pushing and pushing uh, for their ideas. And, you know, the, the, the good showrunner is like the best idea wins, but some people are very sensitive. And you got to remember, I think for Gene, Gene is a guy who had lost Star Trek once he lost yeah. it to Hart Bennett after Star Trek one. He was so, I think, neurotic and uh, his paranoia had been inflamed by his lawyer as well, that he would do anything not to lose it again. Yeah. And so when he sees the, the studio and the network, the studio uh, being excited about the young up and comers like David Gerald or DC Fontana, these other people who potentially could run the show in lieu, you know, he, uh, he, re he responded in a way that maybe, uh, was not um, ideal. Yeah, that was not the, not not the, the the best way to deal with that. Um, but again, we weren't there. 
It's Rashomon, as I've said before. Well, as they say, as they say in the movie The Spanish Prisoner, if uh, someone owes you something, uh, they will begin to uh, treat you harshly to ease their conscience. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that I think uh, is is what happened in this uh, instance because I think Gene absolutely knew how much uh, uh, David and others had contributed to the show and to its popularity and uh, that is a threatening thing to the great bird certainly uh, and uh, it's it's human nature to uh, to try and uh, and win over your uh, your uh, uh, perceived enemies yeah so. It's uh, it's it's understandable, but it's also very sad. And I've said this, I've said this before. Um, you know, obviously, the making of Star Trek was a huge, had a huge impact on me and so many of my contemporaries. Uh, you know, uh, showrunners like David Goodman and uh, Ashley and and uh, many others. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't also uh, acknowledge David Gerald's wonderful book about the making of Trouble Tribbles, which is a kid. I would read it had various drafts of the script and it showed how it changed and evolved and how he would pitch it and how he would interact with the the, the executive producers of the show. And um, that was remarkably instructive and inspiring for me as a, a, a young fan and, uh, you know, helped pave the way for me becoming a television showrunner myself. So um, I'm deeply indebted to David for writing that book, as well as everything that he did for Star Trek uh, back in the heydays. Well, it's that column for Starlog that he wrote. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that was, I a, that was our window into seeing what was happening with the motion picture being developed and uh, and uh, all sorts of things that uh, were involved in fandom and uh, fandom adjacent. And you'll see, I mean, Darren and I kind of during this, this is a panel. It's not an interview uh, in the traditional sense. We sort of kick back a little bit and let David do his thing. Uh, but then we try and keep the uh, interview on the uh, uh, on, on the path. Keep and the momentum, momentum going. But you'll, you'll see it, it's wonderfully uh, instructive and endearing. And uh, we hope you enjoy our talk uh, with David Gerald at GalaxyCon last December in Columbus, Ohio. So without any further ado, let's go back in time. Let's slingshot around the sun and find ourselves in the shadow of the Schwarzenegger statue across the street from, oh, that was another great restaurant. That was, a, remember our last meal? We went to, um, what was it called? The Italian restaurant. Uh-huh. What was it called? It was yeah, called. Yeah, my mind is blank. Oh my gosh. It was right next to the Hilton. What was that restaurant? Italian restaurant. It was called, um, it wasn't marinara. It was, what was no, it? No, no. Andiamo. What was it? What, what the it, hell was it? It was a drink name. It wasn't Chianti. It was, oh, yeah. it was Martini. Martini. It was, of course. It was the Martini. We were right. the Martini on the weekend, which is the expression in show business. The last shot is the Martini. Yeah. So we said that we went to the Martini Sunday night before we left the next day. And boy, that was good. Yeah, it was lovely. Oh, that was really good. I definitely want to go back there. I really enjoyed that. Luckily, we were able to get a uh, reservation on uh, Sunday night because we, so we weren't able to get in any other night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right, because they were so popular. What What did you have? I don't remember. I think I had the lasagna, which was uh, glorious. Yeah, and the chicken parm was terrific. And I used to love chicken parm, but I haven't had a really good chicken parm in a long time. And this was great. And um, uh, that bread pudding for dessert was sensational. Well, you know. Oh, and then, you know, this is funny before we get to David. So I'm flying back and I'm connecting through Detroit, right? And um, I'm at the at the terminal, the big Delta terminal. 
And uh, there are a couple of restaurants and uh, places. And there's a piano player. I'm thinking it's so odd, this piano player. He's playing Christmas themes. It was the time of the season where you play Christmas music. All of a sudden, I hear, dun, 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 dun. And I'm like, oh, my God. Is it? And it's like, he's playing the Star Trek theme. And I'm like. Just freaky. I couldn't believe it. And I'm like trying to get my phone out. Like, I can't believe it. And uh, and I, I walk over and I give him the huge thumbs up and I just reach into my wallet, take out $20 bill and throw it in the tip jar. I'm like, this is the coolest thing. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so bizarre. Here I am coming back from this. It was a Star Trek convention, but it was a Star Trek convention for us. And um, and I mean, among White Christmas and Little Drummer Boy and all this stuff, he suddenly just out of nowhere starts playing the Star Trek theme. It was crazy. Well, you know, sometimes the universe just provides for you. It, does, it was like that scene in Conscience of the King where they're at the dinner party and all of a sudden the Star Trek theme comes on. I should have this guy record the thing for Trexperts. <laughs> he was great. And I think he got a kick out of the fact that I was clearly uh, uh, mesmerized by his performance of, uh, of of Star Trek. Because you don't, you don't see that a lot. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I had no such experience on my journey, on my voyage home. Uh, so you're lucky. Well, you're very yeah. lucky. Well, not only that, they had a Chick-fil-A there too, which was great because it wasn't a Sunday. So um <laughs> anyway, so uh let's uh let's go back and, and take a look at our, our our terrific panel with uh David Gerald. And um we'll be back uh after uh after you get to enjoy this time with David. We join the David Gerald panel in progress. He's talking about writing the unproduced Blood and Fire episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was very involved with blood donorship uh, because of my friendship with Robert A. Heinlein, and I, want, and I had just, I had found out that we had a critical shortage of blood donors because of the fear of AIDS. This was 1986, 87. And so I wanted to write a script about blood donorship, and at the end of it, we put a card up that said, you can be a, a Star Trek blood donor too, and, and we would do something about blood donorship. And uh, so I created this disease called the bloodworms and um, wrote this script. And it, the outline was approved, and I sat down to write the script. I realized, oh crap, this character can be the gay crew member that Gene promised. And, uh, the, and the only giveaway that he's gay is that at one point Riker asks him, how long have you two been together? And he says, since the Academy. That's it. Um, now, if you were like 14, you would say, oh, they're good friends. <laughs> but, you know, if you're a little uh, uh, more aware, again, this was 1986, 87, you can figure it out. Well, I went off to be a guest at a Star Trek cruise, and Dorothy Fontana, oh, Gene sent me a telegram saying, everybody loves your script, great. I come home on Sunday night, there's a phone message from Dorothy Fontana, don't say or do anything till I talk to you. Oh, crap. <laughs> and that's when... Uh, Rick Berman and um, uh, Gene's despicable walking elbow wrinkle of a lawyer, and um, yeah, Leonard Baselish. And Leonard Baselish, yeah, Gene's, yeah. Thank you. He had to say his name. <laughs> He's and, dead. It's okay. Yeah, uh, and a couple other people had objected to the inclusion of a gay crew member, and uh, so I wrote a memo that said, "If not now, when? If not here, where?" Gene made a promise. When are we going to keep it? Uh, Herb Wright stuck his head in my uh, door, said, great memo, we still have to take the character out. So I rewrote the script, gave the dialogue to Tasha Yar. Uh, by the way, Denise Crosby is a wonderful actress, she's great fun. And um, 
And then it went through about three or four more iterations. And I realized that that is like, we're getting nowhere on this. And Bob Justman finally wrote a memo. So why don't we just work, go with David's script? It's a great script. And by then it was too late. There'd been just too much back and forth. And uh, uh, that was one of the reasons why I left the show because I wanted to do the Star Trek that we had been promised. I didn't want to do, uh, if you remember those first two seasons of Star Trek Next Generation, they didn't, were not very good. And that was because of all of the internal hoorah going on. I don't have to go into detail. Um, but at one point, 30 people left the show in the first season, which was unprecedented. And the studio was calling around to agents, can you get your writers to come in? And the agents were saying no, which is unprecedented for an agent to say, turn down work or whatever. Anyway, uh, and so 20 years later, uh, I guess that's when it was, James Cawley calls and says, we want to do Blood and Fire for Star Trek New Voyages. And I only took his call because Dorothy Fontana told me to, because she had done the one with Chekhov. Yeah, to serve uh, all my days. To serve all my days. And, and she said, these are good people, take the call. And so James Colley and I hit it off, and we, uh, he had a previous draft of Blood and Fire that Carlos Pedraza had done, and I looked at it, and uh, he said, do you want to fix it? And I said, well, yeah, there's a couple lines in here that would not be appropriate for classic Trek. By the time I was through, I had taken his 56-page script and turned it into a 120-page feature-length script because there was so much story there. And uh, James says, we can do it, but it's gonna be a stretch. And, I, uh, and somewhere in there, I agreed I would direct it. And uh, so I sat down, and I had taken courses in how to lay out the scheduling. So I put up my uh, database program, put all the scenes, all the actors, everything in the schedule, diddled it a little bit, and had a production schedule. Had to move two things around. There's one actress who wasn't available, uh, but other, we replaced her. And uh, But it was a perfect schedule as long as we kept to it, because there are people only be there for two days, and fireworks would only be available on this weekend. And so, so we had to, and Denise Crosby would only be available for three days. So we had to stay on schedule. And I give enormous credit to the fans who came in, the, uh, the behind the, the, the director of photography, the props, the costumes, the set builders, oh, what a great crew, because we had to redress the set of the, the bridge set and um, to look like the damaged set of the Copernicus and then two days later redress it to be back the bridge set because that was the only way we could do it. And, uh, but we stayed on schedule, we completed it actually a few hours early and um, we put all the pieces together. We actually had the equivalent of a feature-length Star Trek movie. Uh, uh, there were some fans who were, why did you put gay characters in, in Star Trek in 1987? Oh no, this was like 1990-something. And uh, I said, I responded with, because Gene promised we would have gay characters and this is the completion of that promise. So um, I had some copies of that script. I'm sorry we sold out. I didn't know we'd be talking about it. Otherwise I'd have brought more. Um, but if you want to order it, I can send you one. So we'll do that. Um, but you can see the final product on um, YouTube. Look up Blood and Fire. And you can see we did a pretty good job. There are parts of it that look as good as any of the professional productions. Uh, there's a couple scenes that there's, I'd say I got about 80% of what I wanted, which is really a victory. 
Um, and uh, let me, but I will share one thing uh, is that um, as a director, you don't want visual monotony. And I realized the last 20 pages of the script all take place on the bridge. So I realized the bridge, some of those of you who have seen Star Trek, the bridge is circular. And so I said, what we'll do is move the camera clockwise around the bridge. So to break up. So every time we have a different motivational unit, we'll move the camera a few degrees. So the, it worked out perfectly that the big confrontation between Spock and McCoy with Kirk in the middle takes place right there center. And I was so pleased that I could make that work. And we had great actors. Uh, uh, James Colley played Kirk. Uh, a doctor, um, come on, who played uh, uh, yeah. McCoy? Uh, he's, he's a real doctor. He played Dr. McCoy. And then we had uh, Ben Alpe, not Ben Alpe, Ben Tolkien uh, playing um, Spock. And he did, a, he did a very nice job. And, so, and it was just a wonderful, it was like you could almost see, you know, uh, Dee Kelly and Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner doing that scene. And that was, to me, that was a high point. Well, well that, that's the great part about, you know, especially when you write for Star Trek. I mean, you have those voices. You, you know how to write those voices and what they would say and what they wouldn't say. I spent my first days on the set back in 1967 just listening, just watching them do takes and listening to their voices. Let's talk about that a little bit yeah, because I, I think that's fascinating because you, you were already a fan of the show. Uh, and and when you uh, when you uh, got into uh, doing uh, script doctoring first for the show and then uh, worked with uh, Gene Kuhn to develop uh, Tribble script, correct? Yeah. Uh, no, no. Tribbles came first. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah Tribbles got me in the door, and Dorothy Fontana saw the outline and uh, right. and said uh, it was called a fuzzy thing happened to me, and <laughs> we hadn't come up with the name Tribbles yet. And Dorothy said, this has whimsy. I never let her forget that. <laughs> she says, let's give this to a real writer. And Gene L. Kuhn, who had already met me uh, the previous year, said, no, no, I know this kid. Let's give him a chance. And so, we, and, and so it was a step deal. I would do each step. And if they liked what I had done, they'd go on to the next step. And I ended up doing the whole script and the rewrite and everything. It was sort of a certain series of trials and tribulations. Yeah. But, but let, let's take a, a step back because, you know, uh, some of the names that you're name checking, some people may not know. And of course, it's Gene really Kuhn important to talk the, about uh, who Gene line was. Producer. You had your executive producer, Gene Roddenberry, who was so tired from the first season, he took Machel on a vacation during the summer. And Gene L. Kuhn was running the show for, I would say, about eight episodes. Um, and um, uh, Dorothy Fontana was the story editor. And that was it. There was no writer's room. Everybody was freelance. I met Norman Spinrad in the office one morning. Um, I didn't meet any of the other writers. Uh, but I asked, finally asked permission to visit the set. And I was able to watch William Shatner working with uh, Mark Daniels, who had directed all the I Love Lucy's. And uh, what, an, what an absolute thrill to see this history. And uh, and then all the character actors, and it was so and, and the sets, and stage stage nine was the Star Trek sets, and stage ten was all the planets, and and, and stage ten had been converted into this vast landscape of the Apple, which is just the first time I'd ever been on a set that enormous, and uh, I remember uh, Bonanza was shot two sound stages down. So one day, Hoss Cartwright walks in, uh, and, and little Joe walk into, and if you ever want 
your mind boggled at seeing Haas and Little Joe standing around on the set of the Apple. <laughs> and, uh, and then one day uh, before I Mud was shot, Roger C. Carmel came in and shouts across at, uh, at uh, D. Kelly, hello, you galactic quack. <laughs> and uh, so the set was, uh, we got a lot of visits on the set from other actors who would drop in. And uh, not Lucy, I didn't meet Lucy till years later. Um, uh, but Lucy was, without Lucy, Star Trek wouldn't have happened. Uh, they had to decide between pitching, doing a pilot for Mannix and a pilot for Star Trek. And they said, we only have enough money to do one, let's do Mannix. And she said, I'll pay for the pilot for Star Trek. And uh, God bless Lucille Ball. Otherwise, none of us would be here today. <laughs> and a lot of the Mission Impossible We'd cast be came lost by the set, too. Yeah. yeah, Mission Impossible was... Uh, um, so you'd be walking around the lot or you'd be in the commissary and here's uh, the Mission Impossible cast, Barbara Bain and uh, um, uh, uh, Martin Landau and, and, uh, and uh, it was good to, you know, it, it was, all of a sudden they weren't TV faces anymore, they were real people. Um, now I will share one thing with you, when I wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, I imagined Cyrano Jones as Boris Karloff, but I forgot to put that in the script, think of Boris Karloff. And, by then they had hired Stanley Adams and it's like, okay, but can you imagine if Boris Karloff had played Can I interest you in a harmless little dribble? <laughs> like, oh yeah, don't take it, Nichelle, no, no, no. So, and I met, I met all the cast there. Um, uh, Leonard Nimoy asked, uh, I, I met everybody but Leonard. I was scared crap out of me to meet Leonard because he was so Spock. You know, and Bill Shatner explained to me how to write Captain Kirk, and, and I and and D. Kelly was just the nicest guy, and I, I got to meet Nish. She was wearing the two-piece outfit from Mirror Mirror. <laughs> I was like, oh my God! Just looking at the pictures are enough, and I'm standing, you know, this far for Michelle. Next, there was more of Michelle showing. <laughs> I love that woman. She was so beautiful then and more beautiful. It's just the greatest. Nichelle had a spark about her that nobody else matched. And uh, one day there's this uh, guy in a uniform asking me, so what do you do here? And I said, well, I'm working on a script. What do you do? He says, oh, I play Chekhov. I said, oh, good. I finally got to, you know, now I know who Chekhov is. Um, because this was one of his first scripts. But you had originally written it for Sulu. Yeah. So, um, but I'm sitting there one day, and there's his hand on my shoulder, and this voice says, I've seen you around here for three days. Who are you? <laughs> I'm David Gerald. And I turn around, and it's Mr. Spock. I'm David Gerald. I'm writing a script. <laughs> I must have looked like I was 14, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. And Leonard says, which one? <laughs> the one with the fuzzy creatures. Oh, yes, that will be great fun. <laughs> By the way, Len I learned to love and admire Leonard, but he, you know, once he was Spock, he was Spock. <laughs> so I don't think he could ever stop being Spock. He was, it's just, but Leonard was a fun guy, uh, just uh, uh, really a generous man, big, great spirit, and I was so sorry when we, we lost him. I want, I want to ask you about Gene because obviously he was a mentor and he really championed your work and uh, continued to. Gene's such an interesting guy because, you know, unfortunately he died in the early 70s, so he wasn't there to do the conventions and get all the recognition, but he had so much to do with the life and construction of Star Trek and obviously in recognizing well, new the, talent. And 
the first season was Gene Roddenberry, and there's real gravitas in that. Gene, Rod uh, Gene Kuhn had a sense of humor. Gene Roddenberry did not have a sense of humor. Um, but Gene O'Kuhn had a sense of humor. Now, the show first aired on September 8th, 1966 at 8.30 NBC. And the first Correct. episode... Uh, Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and uh, uh, I saw that first episode. It was The Man Trap by, written by George Clayton Johnson. And uh, I'm sitting there skeptical because after Lost in Space, I don't trust any television series to do science fiction or I'm a big science fiction fan. I grew up on Asimov and Heinlein and Sturgeon and Clark, Murray Leinster, uh, Jerome Bixby, uh, uh, Frederick Pohl, Cyril Kornbluth. Uh, I admired all of them, uh, Andre Norton and so on. Um, and I was thinking, they're gonna screw it up because that's what television does. And it's, oh, right, a guy without emotions, that's not going to work. Uh, and uh, I'm looking at it, it's like, now, transporter beam, I don't believe it. And, and, you know, and I'm sitting there being super skeptical, right? And I'm realizing they're solving. And then they I go down to the planet, and they have this pyramid that, of the alien race. And I look at it, and the doorway to the pyramid is not human-shaped. And I go, oh, son of a gun, they, somebody got it right that there's not going to be a... a and I thought, and, and even though I was skeptical about the show, uh, I wrote an outline uh, on Friday. Uh, my agent took it in on Monday, um, and uh, Gino Kuhn called back a couple days later and said, we're all bought up, but I want to meet this kid. And so I went in, and, and uh, now that was not the first time I had pitched. I had pitched a couple episodes to Bonanza, but when I went in for the meeting, Skip Webster, the producer, decided I was too young to write for the show, even though he liked the outlines too bad. Um, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, so Gino Kuhn was impressed enough. He says, we're all bought up, but if we're, uh, if we're renewed for a second season, please submit some more stories. So I submitted uh, some other stories and the fuzzy thing happened to me. And Dorothy said, it has whimsy and you know the rest. Yeah, there's a lot of these so, guys. But, oh, let me tell you about Gino Kuhn. Uh, he was uh, a brilliant man. He had a sense of humor. He had wrote a he wrote a book, The Short End of the Stick, about his experiences in World War II, and um, he was respectful of writers. And he would go to the mat. One day, when I was in his office, he was on the phone with Stanley Robertson, who was the NBC executive in charge of broadcast standards or whatever. And he said, "Stanley, you're full of crap," and crap wasn't the word he used. <laughs> and, but so he was willing to go to the mat for the story. They on the he, they worked it out. Um, but uh, uh, that's Gene Kuhn respected writers and fought for the integrity of the story over and over and over again which is why that second season of Star Trek had so many good episodes and what's so interesting about Gene is so many of the writers at the time you mentioned Bonanza you were too young they're World War II veterans they're Korean War veterans and they just wanted to hire their friends who were their drinking buddies they weren't that interested in nurturing young talent no. Gene was a Korean War vet but he was very interested I mean and when you look also his assistant was Andre Richardson who yeah. was the first African American assistant on the lot and then you know hires somebody like you who was very she young was, her, her name at that time was Kuhn her last name was Kuhn no, her, no, sorry. Andy Richardson, no, I, I got confused, I apologize. But she would introduce herself to people as, hi, I'm Jean Els Kuhn. And she would do that deliberately for their reaction to right. see where they were coming from. Right. And 
and and uh, she never did that to me. But Andy, Andy's living in in uh, Australia now. But it's like I learned to admire that woman in ten minutes. It's like, yeah, this is a no nonsense assistant who will give you the straight skinny every time, and she did every time. I trusted her. She was part of the reason Gene L. Coons. Uh, 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 office works so well. We got to spend some time with her in Vegas at the Vegas uh, con. Oh, I wish and I could. she was Isn't she wonderful? Love her. Yeah. Absolutely. And still no bullshit. Yeah. Which yeah, is still great. No bullshit. We had the best yeah. Oh, yeah. time with her. I would love to see her again. She was the best. What was it about Gene that you feel... Because he, he didn't have a particular affinity for science fiction. trust him. Mm. You go into a lot of producers' office, you're not willing to trust them. You respect them because they're the producer. But, um, and, and it, it takes time. Is this producer going to uh, uh, love the script or is he going to give me uh, surus? That's a Yiddish word, it means trouble. Is he going to, uh, um, is, 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 am I going to have fun here or am I going to regret walking in that door? And with Gene Kuhn, it was like once you sat down and, and you just started chatting, you knew you were in safe hands, you knew we are in a good place. And he wasn't afraid to, of jokes. He wasn't afraid to be playful. And you mentioned the fact that this was not, uh, you know, obviously it's time of freelance, there's no writing staff. So he learned to lean on you uh, when iMud came. He, he was buried in scripts and rewrites and things. And he, even as a young writer, he says, I need help with this and brought well, you in. It, look, they, the um, top of the show money was $4,500. Uh, scale writers guild minimums was three thousand. So of course, me being a new writer, they only paid three thousand. They had fifteen hundred left in the budget, which is what you pay for a rewrite. So he calls me into his office and he says, "I want you to read this script." So I read the script for iMud that they had, and um, it was okay, but it hadn't gelled yet. You know, you read a script and you're waiting for that spark. And um, and, then, and I went and I came back to see him after lunch. Uh, the Paramount Commissary was not bad in those days. I don't know what it's like now. Uh, it's all right. And uh, he says, all right, so here's the problem. We want to get down to the planet in 15 minutes at the end of the, before the first commercial. See, we're in the script now, we don't get down to the planet till the half hour mark. And we really don't want to spend all that time getting down to the planet because down to the planet is where you tell the story. And he says, so how can you get us down to the planet in 15 minutes? I said, well, you've established in the teaser that Norman is, the android is very strong, that he can beat the crap out of anyone who attacks him. So all the, you have to do is have the androids grab the crew members and beam them down. But you don't have to show it. All you have to do is have an android walk in and say, we have completed beaming down the crew of the Enterprise. And his eyes went wide and he looked at me and said, you've just solved in one line of dialogue what nobody around here has been able to do in two weeks. <laughs> All right, you've got the rewrite. <clears throat> Go rewrite this. Have a lot of fun with what's going on down on the planet. And they did, there were a lot of rewriting about that. But uh, that whole first 15 minutes getting down to the planet, that was mine. And then I added the 500 identical girl robots and, and, and Stella at the end. And he says, why did you have 500 identical girl robots? I said, well, simple. You bring in a, a twins and you do a couple match shots and you, know, and you can have some fun. And, you know, Harry Mudd would love beautiful women around him. And Gene says, oh, all right, let's do that. And, <laughs> <laughs> which, 
Which, you know, this is a respect for what the writer brings to the story. It's not, oh, we can't do that, or that's too silly, or let's not do that. He says, yeah, all right, let's do that. I'll give you another one, one other. Uh, this was on the Tribbles. He says, uh, we can't call them fuzzies. Our uh, research department says there's a book called Little Fuzzy. Yeah, by H. Bean Piper. Well, we don't want to uh, uh, do any uh, uh, conflict of interest. You can come up with a different name for the creature. So I went home, and I made a list of all the silly words I could come up with and crossed off all that were too silly. And I'm Tribble. Uh, all right, we can do Tribble. That was, I wasn't enthusiastic about it. And I went back the, ne the next day or the next day. And uh, I said, oh, and uh, we're talking about another structural problem. Can I bling, bring back Klingons? Can I use... He says, yeah. Oh, and uh, we're going to rename the creatures Tribbles. He says, okay. That was it. That was the entire discussion about how Tribbles got named Tribbles. <laughs> I, I love the fact that in, in the Tribbles episode, you bring in a uh, Klingon commander who seems like we've, we've met him before. Yet we haven't. That you you established him as a recurring character without having him been a recurring character. But it's so clever because it sets up a backstory that we don't see. What I asked Gene, and again, this is Gene Elkuna. I said, look, um, we need a, a villain in this. Can I use the Klingons that were in Errant of Mercy? And he says, yes, we've been talking about do, having a recurring nemesis. Let's use the Klingons. That was it. That was how. The Klingons became a recurring presence, and so once we had established the that there was an Organian peace treaty, then we could establish there was a backstory to the whole thing with the Klingons and the Federation and whatever. And yeah, so but what happened is I said, "Can I reuse the Klingons?" And uh, um, uh, so all those of you who have been, you know, all the Klingon people have it, they can say thank you because I'm one of the I think the show would have figured out the Klingons sooner or later. Uh, I think Gene said we've been thinking about that. So. Well, of course, the, I actually meant that the, the character of Koloff, it yes. seems like that there was an adventure in the past that there they was. had met before. I, I, that and I probably want to see some, that episode. Yeah, somebody, <laughs> somebody could, could write the, the Star Trek novel about the first encounter between Kirk and Koloff. So. Uh, I was trying to think You're thinking about it now, aren't you? Yeah. No, I'm, not, I'm not going to. No, I'm kind of I'm burned out of Star Trek. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's despicable walking elbow wrinkle of a lawyer. Um, kind he's of long the, gone. Lo, he's, oh my God. But when his son died. Stole Dorothy Fontana called me and said, Leonard Maislich died. And then she couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and, and, and Dorothy is not one, was not one given to easy laughter, but that man had made her life so miserable that she was entitled to that. And um, no, I'll, I'll tell you, one day she had called me and said, Leonard Maislich has a brain tumor. I said, do, do I send the get well card to the tumor? <laughs> that's, that's really how despicable that man was. He bragged about how he loved hurting people. And um, uh, anyway, after he, he kind of ruined my enthusiasm for Star Trek for a long time. And, you know, Trials and Tribulations was a marvelous job on Deep Space Nine. I know there's been a uh, uh, measure of a man on uh, TNG. It was a great script by... Uh, uh, Melinda Snodgrass, I know that, uh, the Darmak, the whatever, I, I don't remember. <laughs> that was a, a, a good job, too. So there have been great episodes, and I have seen, 
but my enthusiasm for writing any more Star Trek is, uh, um, well, I would want an apology from Paramount, and then I would want an offer of, yeah, what can you do for us, or, you know, have you got any good ideas? Oh, have I got good ideas, yeah. yeah well, my did. mind is working. But meanwhile, I got to say this, I, I will say this. Um, the fact that I was I left Star Trek under the circumstances that Gene Roddenberry and his lawyer made very unpleasant. In, in the long run, they did me a favor because by 1992, I was thinking, um, I think I would like to adopt a little boy. And uh, uh, I wrote, a, I ended up writing a book about the event. I wasn't planning to write about adoption, but I ended up writing a book about how much I loved him uh, uh, called The Martian Child. And um, my little boy is now 38, has a little boy of his own and a little girl on the way. And uh, I have a family, which I would not have had under any other... I mean, if I'd have been working on Trek as a producer, I wouldn't have had time. That would have never happened. That would have never happened. And I will tell you, uh, this was a kid the system had given up on. I said, no, you can't give up on this kid. He's too special. And he turned out to be... uh, just the best thing that ever happened in my life. So, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't do Star Trek, I did something that meant a lot more to me. That's great. And I do have copies of Martian Child for sale on my computer. Come on, I got to do the commercial. But thank you very much. Thank you. You know, there was a. Yeah, and I'll show you pictures of my kid if you come by the table. And my grandson. After Gene left, uh, did you deal with John Meredith Lucas at all before Freddie? I, I came met in? John Meredith Lucas, but um, there were no more assignments, so there was no reason to go in. Um, and then third season was Fred Freiberger, who um, not exactly the right producer for Star Trek. Uh, he didn't quite. He didn't have the spark that Star Trek needed. He didn't have the enthusiasm for it. And even Gene Roddenberry admitted later on, he was very highly recommended, but uh, he wasn't right. And you had a couple of, of, of scripts over there that were very exciting, the Castles in the Sky, Bem, and a sequel to Tribbles, which either happened later with the animated series or got rewritten, which must have been very frustrating given the great experience you had the second season with Gene. Yeah, I, uh, Gene L. Kuhn was such a good man to work with that he spoiled me for every other producer in Hollywood. There are a few other producers who I would want to work with a second time. Chris Black on Sliders, Joe Straczynski on Babylon 5. I think that's the list. No, there may be a couple others I would work with again. Um, Marty Croft, possibly, probably. I've had some meetings with Marty. We want to bring back Line of the Lost somehow. And, um, uh, um, but... There are, I don't know, the uh, producer becomes like a feudal lord and, and uh, it's like, I don't want to be that kind of a person where you start thinking of people as, as property or as objects to move around. Uh, you want to have fun creating a show with people who are, have that same love and enthusiasm for it. Uh, Freddie Freiberger came in and he, it wasn't just that he was rude to me, he was rude to the cast. Uh, and morale on the show was not good. Uh, uh, Walter Koenig wrote a long memo explaining what he thought Chekhov could do in the third season, and Freiberger passed him in the hall one day and said, got your memo, read it, forget it. It's like, uh, not exactly a winner in social skills. His first words to me were, I screened Tribbles this morning, didn't like it, Star Trek is not a comedy. Uh, okay, but um, how about um, saying hello first? <laughs> So I, I pitched other stories, and uh, he bought one and then cut me off and gave it to Margaret Armin. And 
I was not happy in that uh, it, I did. Ca uh, I suggested castles in the sky, and which was about the haves and the have-nots. The one percent up here, and the people who are actually doing the work down here, you know. And Margaret Armin or Fred Freiberger changed it. And if we can just get the slaves to wear these masks, the Zenite gas won't get them. And then we can go on with things the way they are. And I said, no, the whole point of the picture of the story was the economic injustice has to be ended if you're going to have this planet be a member of the Federation. And uh, uh, the punchline, I wanted it to be a downer. Um, uh, where, well, we have instituted good changes on this planet. And McCoy says, yes, but how many children are going to die in the meantime? I wanted to make the point, you know, I didn't want to just be known for the comedy. I wanted to do a story that you would be arguing about for weeks later, because that was what Star Trek was best at, is, is you would go to a convention or, you, hell, you'd just go to the local diner and you'd listen to the people in the next booth over arguing about what they had just seen the night before. Um, that was, to me, that was the success of Star Trek, is, that, is, is it got people excited and enthused that the way things are isn't the way they have to be. But then you came back and had a much better experience, obviously it was DC, it was your friend on the animated series, and, and that must have been a, a, a more satisfying oh, experience Oh, I love working with Dorothy Fontana, I wish she was still with us. She was a lifelong friend. And uh, I, I wish I could just pick up the phone and chat with her. She and we get together for lunch at Jerry's Deli. Jerry's Deli is gone yeah, too. It is. <laughs> Crap. Anyway, but we'd get together and we and we we worked together on a lot of things. She came in did a script for me on Land of the Lost. Uh, I came in and did an outline for a story on a show that got canceled called Fantastic Journey. Uh, we worked together on. Uh, she did script for Babylon 5. Uh, we tried, we pitched a couple shows together. She worked with me developing the Star Wolf uh, project. Um, uh, she uh, assisted when I was teaching at Pepperdine. I came in and taught for her when she was on vacation, when she was teaching at the AFI. And uh, uh, she pitched me to teach over there. And they said, no, he doesn't have enough credentials in film to teach screenwriting. Okay, whatever. Um, even though when she'd go to the Rodeo in Vegas every December, I would go in and teach my class on characterization. Um, but uh, uh, on the animated show, she said, I know you pitched uh, 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 More Tribbles, More Troubles to Gene, and, and Fred Freiberger uh, said, no, will you do it for the animated? I said, I'd love to. So that's why the animated more is, is, is pretty much what we want to do on the live action show. And then uh, we also did BIM, which got held over to second season. Um, neither one of us liked the way the script for BIM turned out, but when I screened it recently, I said, you know, that holds together, it would work. Is it because Gene Roddenberry decided he needed to produce because he was getting, you know, collecting the checks. And uh, he says, what, what this story needs is God. I said, Gene, we have God in every other Star Trek episode. <laughs> Kirk defeats God. All right. I still managed to make it work. I said, but okay, but only if Nichelle does the voice of God. <laughs> and that goes back to an old joke that I just love. Is like, yeah, I saw God. Yes, you saw God? Yes. What, what's God like? Well, first of all, she's black. <laughs> yeah, 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 I wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Nichelle. I want to do it. Like, whatever I could throw Nichelle's way is like, it's like, I love all of them, but, uh, you know, Nichelle was just special. 
And what's interesting, in the 70s then, you were doing books besides your fiction. You were doing stuff like World of Star Trek, and you were also going to conventions where you and the cast were being treated like rock stars. And for a writer, you know, it's like you and Harlan, I mean, were, you know, getting treated like the actors. I and mean, that must have been kind of, wild. It, it, kind of, it kind of spoiled me. <laughs> but actually, yeah, it was like being treated like one of the Beatles. And after uh, about 20 minutes of it, I said, you know what? I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't want to be famous. I want millions of people to buy my books, but I do not want to be famous. I want to be left alone. But being able to, look, I'm a longtime fan. You know, I, I'm like you guys, I'm a fan. There's no difference between us. I'm good, and I'm such a fan that no, there's stories I want to read or stories I want to see, no one else is writing them, so I have to do them myself, okay? That's the only difference between us, all right? And, and so I would go to the conventions and they put me on a panel and say, okay, I will share what fun we've had because not all of you could be there. Here's the what, what so I will share all the good stuff. And I'll try to avoid getting into too much of the bad stuff. So. Um, I'll share a story with you. This is good. First big Star Trek convention I attended was in New York, which is a, a, in 1973 was a marvelous city. Um, and, and you didn't have all these strange buildings that, anyway. Uh, and they said, David, we want you to be on the writing panel, the script writing panel. I said, great, I'll do that. And so I come in, and here's like 3,000 Star Trek fans in one room, which is the largest audience I had ever been in front of for anything. I had had a little career as an actor, okay? And, and um, until I realized how hard work that was. Uh, and I sit down, and I'm waiting for the panel to start, and Isaac Asimov, who I already knew, who walks in, sits down next to me, because he's going to be on the panel too. I said, hi, Isaac. He says, hello, David. And, uh, and, and wow, that's cool. I'm on a panel with Isaac Asimov. And then Hal Clement comes in, who was another writer who I totally admired because he got his science right every time out, even while I was telling a great story. And he sits down next to me. I knew Hal a little bit. I said, hi, Hal. Hi, David. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing sitting between <laughs> Isaac Asimov and Hal Clement? Right? And the other little voice, because there's a whole comedian here, says, keep your mouth shut or the whole audience will be asking that question too. <laughs> well, it being a Star Trek convention, the first question from the audience is, how important do you think science is in science fiction? I said, well, I think it's very important. And, um, and he asked it of me, because I'm the Star Trek writer and he's the Star Trek fan. I said, well, I think it's very important, so if I don't know anything, I pick up the phone and I call Isaac. And if he doesn't know, he picks up the phone and he calls Hal. So let me just hand the microphone to Hal Clement. <laughs> no. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, and let me put it this way. I'm not a modest man when it comes to my own work, but I'm modest when it comes to the greatness of other writers. And, and we're all colleagues. We're not competing with each other. We're colleagues. If, if, uh, uh, is, if somebody writes a great book, I cheer. Yay, another great book for me to read. Um, and anybody who thinks this is a competition is missing half the fun of, of the whole writing community. And of course, you were good friends with Harlan, and his passing was such a loss. I wonder if you want to say a few words about him. Harlan was not only one of my mentors, uh, he saved my life back in 1969, uh, which I will not go into here, because that's going to go into my autobiography. Um, which is on sale at his booth. Not yet! 
have to finish writing it. No, it's actually I have three books to write about. I want to write about my experiences on Next Gen. I want to write my own autobiography, and I want to write about the transformative experience that that uh, that involved Harlan saving my life. And um, and it's three separate books. There's too much to put into one book because it's three separate areas of discussion. But um, Harlan and I, um, we bumped heads for. I don't know, about a year or two, and then I realized, let Harlan be Harlan. I'm getting a private performance of Harlan Ellison, right? And so I would go up and visit uh, him uh, in his house, which Ellison Wonderland, which became, uh, I watched it grow from a really nice house to this, you know, his own private Disneyland. And it's great. Um, but it was also a lesson. Uh, I learned more from Harlan than almost anybody else because uh, I would listen to what he was passionate about, which is justice and good writing, and that was a great combination, and integrity. And, uh, but the more things he collected, whether it was records or little uh, toys or, or uh, artwork, the more he had to dust the more book, it's like the less he wrote. And I said, I cannot do that. I want to keep writing. And it's like, I don't mind Harlan you know, having a second childhood. I don't mind, I, I love him. He gave us all this great stuff. He's a great voice. He is, he's like, but I've noticed that the more he collects, the less he writes. And I wish he would write more. That was me. It's like, and, uh, and then uh, uh, he met Susan, who I had met previously. And I, I thought, oh, this one's going to work. This marriage. And, and they were together for like 33 years. Susan was great for him. He was great for her, and the two of them together were something special. So I, I, Harlan was not just a mentor, he was like my big brother. And uh, I, one other story about Harlan, we, were, we had a Writers Guild strike in 73, 88 we had this, uh, no it was, it was 96 we had the Writers Guild, another Writers Guild strike. Every time I get a good project going, the Writers Guild goes on strike. But. Um, Harlan was being interviewed by somebody from CBS, and he was going on and on, and he, I was just hanging out listening, and Harlan suddenly says, you should really inter interview David Gerald. He's the most courageous man I know. I go, what the? And then I realized it was because I had adopted Sean, and Harlan was uh, Sean's uh, uh, god-uncle. Harlan was Sean, and... Uh, and, uh, but I never felt I needed the courage. I felt it was Sean needed the courage. But... but uh, um, but that was the greatest compliment Harlan ever gave me, and I, I cherish it. So I miss Harlan a lot. He was special. Um, one day, uh, the last year of his life, he was still recovering from the stroke. He said, I need to get to uh, my doctor's appointment. And, and he said, all right, let me arrange it. And I managed to uh, find two young Mormon elders and a van. <laughs> and, we got, and we got Harlan to his doctor's appointment. And then after the doctor's appointment, we all went to uh, a, a, an Italian deli in Burbank, which is absolutely great. And Harlan treated, and there, were, you know, and there was uh, Sharon and Susan and me and these two young Mormon elders and Harlan. And, and Harlan was sampling what everybody else had ordered, too. <laughs> he was a gourmand. And it was a great time. Harlan was absolutely charming to everybody. And it was the old Harlan back for just a very short time. And uh, I got one of the last things he ever, I hardly ever asked him for an autograph, but that was, I said, I want an autograph from you on this. And he labored, but he gave me the autograph. And um, God, I miss that man.
I think uh, everyone here is grateful for you being here. Oh, thank you. We certainly are. Thank you very much. I, I, it's like, I, I keep thinking you should be a part of this panel too, and then I realize I, this is about me, and then this is. Yeah. Oh, all right. Then I, then I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. plenty of panels. This is about you. Because like, Darren is working with the, the uh, Roddenberry. Uh, uh, archive, and he's with the Trek experts, and uh, and he's working on. The, oh, come on! You told me, and it went blank. There's something else you worked on recently. Something big. Well, the the uh, <coughs> director's edition of the motion picture. Right. Yes. That just came out this year. Yeah, uh, I was there for the screening, yeah. but uh, and as soon as the uh, 4K was released, it's like ordered it off Amazon. Uh, the Martian picture's been remastered. Uh, 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 Darren and um, a whole bunch of other people work really hard repairing, restoring, digitizing, and uh, the picture finally makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and it's, it's Robert Wise's fine cut of the film, and uh, it works a lot better than the theatrical version. A lot better. Uh, so uh, check it out if you haven't already. Well, and the box set has the original theatrical version, yep. the ABC cut, and the director's edition. Yep. So you know, for completeness, and, and there's all kinds volume. of tchotchkes in there, yeah. posters and whatever. Tiny bumper stickers and posters, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It it, it uh, that picture was uh, a challenge for everybody. Uh, Roddenberry had a big vision for it, and they went back and forth. There's a lot of script problems and. The picture shipped wet. That meant is like as each print came out of the soup, they put it in the can and shipped it, and it was going to dry off in, in the projector the first time it was run. Which was just that. That's how it was. It was a photo finish. It was literally, a, literally a photo finish. Um, we saw it the night before it opened, on December seventh, which was an ominous date. Anyway, uh, uh, there was a guild, uh, not a guild screening. There was a screening for uh, all of the. Uh, uh, Paramount execs and people connected with the picture in one way or another. And uh, uh, I went with my boyfriend at the time and uh, the head of Paramount, uh, his mother was sitting next to him and she fell asleep with her head on my boyfriend's shoulder and he goes, should I wake her up? No, no. <laughs> but um, um, I think Harlan was there too. I'm sure he was. Yeah, he was. And uh, he did not like the picture. But, uh, you know, uh, the first half of the picture is great. We get to spend time with the original cast again. And the second half of the picture, I just wish it had been brighter. But, uh, well, the, the new version is brighter. It is. It is. <laughs> well, uh, Harlan was the one who coined the term the motionless picture in Starlight. Yeah. Oh, is that what? Okay. Another reason to love or hate him, depending on your point of view. <laughs> well, he was—he never held back on what he felt, and we, you know, there's so many people who will tell you uh, they'll shine you on, and Harlan wouldn't. And uh, I realized that at one point I was turning into my own version of Harlan because they had interviewed me for something or other—the Chaos on the Bridge, the Bill Shatner uh, uh, thing. And, some, and a friend said, you came across like someone who didn't give a shit. I said, oh, good, it finally clicked in. <laughs> I was like, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> you know? I was like, I'm old, get off my lawn, leave me alone. <laughs> so, uh, Well, do we have time for a question before? Yeah, let's do some questions. I just want to say thank you again. I have had a great life, and, and all of you and all of Star Trek have been a part of it. Questions, okay. who has questions? Questions from the audience for David? Yes. Yeah, David, you said you were very young, um, doing Trouble with Tribbles. So how, 
I was 23. I looked like I was 14. <laughs> Literally, I am not kidding. Uh, if find some pictures of me, um, there aren't many because uh, I don't show up in mirrors or cameras. But um, <laughs> but I, I looked so young that um, you know I was getting carded at the bars when I was 33. Okay, so um, yeah. Anyway, yes, over here. Can, uh, I know we talked a lot about Gene Kuhn. Can you talk a little bit about Gene Roddenberry? Because he seems Do like, I have from to? my perspective, <laughs> a Let me get, let's say, great men have great virtues, but also a lot of times great flaws. And something must have happened to Gene at some point in his past that made him scared of losing things. And, and uh, he could give great speeches. And he could inspire us to want to write better stories than we knew we were capable of. But uh, he was a terrible manager. Um, and so it was, uh, and there was one thing about Gene which, he, he, you know, I, I said to him one day when I was working, I said, if I'm gonna write for Star Trek, I have to live up to this, that the future works for all of us with no one and nothing left out, that because that's the dream we're selling. Gene, not it. But then I noticed Gene had to have enemies. It was, this was Paramount's fault, this was NBC's fault, this was Harlem's fault, and eventually it was my turn in the bucket too. And I felt, you know, I learned a lesson there, is it, it there's a great emotional stress that you take on when you choose to have a grudge of any kind. And learning to let go, learning to forgive, and I had to spend some time thinking about, somebody must have hurt Gene really badly that he became the way he did. And part of it, I believe, is that the lawyer, that terrible, terrible human being, uh, who I still haven't forgiven, um, and I'll work on it, I, really, but, uh, and somebody must have hurt him even bad, because he was the source of a great, great much of, he fed into Gene's darker impulses, and that was, that was bad for Gene, because Gene really wanted to do well. So I have this mixed feelings about it, so. Darren, what would Gene say to that? Well, yeah, what would... Not in Gene's voice! Don't you dare! I have to do Gene's voice. Oh, all right, David. <laughs> Just this once. And I, I know it, it gives you horrible, <laughs> horrible recollections of, of worse times. Go ahead. But uh, I just have to say that uh, David's contribution to the, the world of Star Trek, uh, not just his book, um, is uh, really a wonderful thing, and I, I wish that uh, I could take all the credit for it, but he, he, he wrote too much stuff to back himself up, and so I'm, I'm not able to, but uh, thank you anyway. Thank you. Yes. So, uh, going back to Gene Alcoon, so I'm not going to be able to come up with examples, but is, is it true that he uh, laid a lot of the framework for Star Trek? Like a lot of the things that we know as core Star Trek came from Gene Coon? Uh, not just Gene Elkoon, but Dorothy Fontana. A lot of, uh, Dorothy invented a lot of the details about Spock. I never told my mother I loved her, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that Spock had all these buried emotions. Uh, Gene Elkoon invented a lot of details as well. Um, I'm not sure which ones. Uh, one of the ones I, uh, um, that I'm pretty sure Roddenberry invented was a transporter beam because the shuttlecraft hadn't been finished built at the time. So, um, but uh, I'm not sure when Gene Elkoon came aboard. 
but if you look at what Mark Cushman wrote these three great books where he went to the files that are stored at UCLA and went through every memo um, and so he was able to track what happened on each episode and when things were invented and his book lists what Dorothy contributed and what Gene Alcune did uh, Contributed so yeah a lot of it uh, one of the things that Gene Kuhn definitely contributed Was that triangle of relationships of Kirk Spock and McCoy which is critical to understanding the success of the show Kirk is the decider Spock is the rational McCoy is the emotional and I could spend an hour just talking about the brilliance of that triangle not just for those characters, but writing itself. I think that will be a future episode of the Inglorious Transports, yeah. where we will go over that. But the Klingons, the Organian Peace Treaty, the Prime Directive, all came from Gene Kuhn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just agreed to do an episode of Trexperts for... Uh, <laughs> I, I will tell you, writing, writing Kirk, Spock, McCoy scenes is one of the real joys of writing. Um, now, what I did, because I had some acting experience, and I realized that every character has to have their own voice. And I was on the, visiting the set, and I would listen to Jimmy Dewan, and I'd listen to uh, DeForest Kelly, and I'd listen to Leonard, and I'd listen to Bill, until I had their voices in my head. So when I could go home and, and type dialogue for them, it was, how would Bill say this? And I would, lis I would listen to Bill in my head, and I'd listen to Leonard in my head, and listen to Dee in my head. And this is why so little of the dialogue got rewritten, because I had mastered to, to the extent I could, the, the characters that I was seeing and hearing on the soundstage. And because I was, I was writing specifically for the, what I knew the actors could do and what they were capable of. And I think that's one of the successes of the script. And my favorite scene is Kirk asking Scotty, how did the fight start? And Bob Justman, who thought I was way too young to write for Star Trek, wrote a memo saying this is the best scene for demonstrating the relationship between these two characters that we've ever had in the entire show, this season, this season. And I thought, yay, I got a compliment from Bob Justman. <laughs> well, it's interesting you talk about spending time on the set with the actors because you wouldn't have known how funny Bill is if you didn't get to know him as a person because certainly the first season of Star Trek, Kirk as a character was not funny. Bill Shatner was trained as a Shakespearean actor, which explains for a lot of his performances. And he also had to memorize something like 60 pages of script every week. Now, most of the other actors, they're there for two days. And they maybe get, at most, 10 pages, right? And Bill's got to do 10 pages a day, which explains part of his delivery because he's trying to remember the next line. <laughs> but he's a workaholic. And he was there every day. He'd be there at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, and he, even Leonard didn't have to be there as much, although Leonard had to be there early for the ears, which took an hour to put on. And, and, but Bill was there every day working his ass off. He didn't have time for anything except to, to work with the director, what the next shot would be, and, 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 you know, and I admire him so much. And, but he did have a funny sense of humor. And, and watching him work with Mark Daniels, you can see he's kidding around a lot as he's getting ready for the shot. And I, and and uh, but he had never had a chance to do real comedy, and we didn't know he could do comedy. And in fact, I was prepared to rewrite that scene where he steps out of the way when all the tribbles come down. You know, <laughs> if he had said, "This is too silly, I'm not going to do it," so okay, Bill. You know, like you're the ca he says, "I'm I'm the captain. I have to be." This, and but he recognized this is a comic episode, and we got to have make we got to have fun here, and so. Um, 
and and that scene where the triples are hitting him in the head, Irv Feinberg, the prop man, was deliberately aiming for him. <laughs> so that's real annoyance that you see. And, but I think Bill got Bill loved that episode so much. You can ask him uh, because he got it was his first big chance to do a real comedy, and and so after that, uh, and I had always felt. I, about writing is if you're doing any kind of action or a suspense, you have to break the pacing up with a joke here and there. Dr. No and From Russia With Love, James Bond would have the quip. I guess she's had her kicks. After every, you know, the, the, and, and that would give you the punchline to the action sequence. And I realized this is great pacing. You, you have this little bit of action, then you have a little, just a moment of break to, to, to release all the tension and then you build it up again. And, and uh, I felt Star Trek needed comedy. Uh, Gene Roddenberry came back from vacation, was very upset, said Star Trek is not a comedy. Uh, and, and he and Gene Elkoon had a little argument about that, and that's why Gene Elkoon left the show. But the comic episodes proved to be that thing that pushed Star Trek from being just another adventure show into something special, I think. I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on that, but so far in 50 years, nobody's argued with me. Yes? So, who came up with, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer? I think that would have been Gene L. Coon. It was a thing that happened a lot. And it was Devil in the Dark, which was Gene's episode. Yeah, it started with Devil in the Dark. I'm a doctor, not a plasterer. And it became a running gag, and a very good one, too. Thank you. Okay. Well, I think that we, we yeah, I think so. We got the next Thank round. Thank you all very much. Thank, Thank you. you. I'll be in the so there you have it. A considerably happier David Gerald. Absolutely, and uh, you know it's 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 wonderful with these kind of panels that it, it you can get pretty personal and you can get uh, very connected uh, in doing an interview that it doesn't really happen uh, normally. Certainly in a uh, uh, in a Zoom chat recording. Um, no, I, I thought he was very kind to you as well with the praise uh, with, regarding your directing on the um, uh, new voice. Well, that was very that was very sweet of him, and uh, you know, not not as if it's going to uh, increase my uh, uh, directing jobs, but uh, you know, it, it's it's very nice of him to say, and uh, I uh, I certainly enjoyed my time collaborating with him uh, on the episode. Because uh, it was uh, it was written by a uh, another writer, Rick Chambers, who uh, did a great script, and uh, uh, you know it was uh, really quick that uh, David wanted to take a pass at it to uh, you know uh, punch up some of the dialogue to make it sound more like the uh, characters, uh, and he did the he did the uh, rewrite in a in a overnight basically. And uh, it was really a, an astounding effort, and uh, it was so much fun to uh, sort of uh, use him as a sounding board for getting through uh, directing that episode. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, um, he he lit up every time he saw you, so clearly you had a good experience, or at least he had a good experience with you. So I, I certainly had a good experience with him, and uh, our we have uh, friendly jibes at each other when I uh, threatened to do the Roddenberry voice at him uh, that uh, causes him uh, PTSD, uh, which has uh, always been a, a funny uh, thing in my mind. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, it, I have to say, in all seriousness, what a fun time GalaxyCon uh, uh, Columbus was. A great Absolutely. event, uh, a great team run by Mike Broder and his 
his team, like Samantha and everyone there, who wonderfully, um, and Patty, who who just made us feel so welcome. Yep. And uh, uh, it was a great uh, it was a great time, and we're looking forward to returning to Richmond uh, in March March twenty fourth to twenty sixth with our new uh, uh, um, uh, guest uh, Ashley Miller. So that'll be fun, and then we'll be in Austin uh, in September first to the third, and we'll also be going to Raleigh in uh, July shortly after uh, uh, Comic Con. Or Raleigh, as you uh, say it. Uh, well, I say it Raleigh. You said Raleigh, but that's okay. Raleigh, yeah, Raleigh. That's all right. Raleigh, 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 Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh. That's right. Pete Palpisle. That's so, right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, North Carolina. My that's grandmother's right. from North Carolina. I know how to say North Carolina. I did not know that. Spent many, many times in North Carolina working on movies. And, uh, oh, in Wilmington? In Wilmington and, uh, and uh, Charlotte, which was near Gaffney, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, I spent the, some time scouting in Asheville. I almost ended up shooting there. In Asheville's a nice town. Yeah. And very nice. Beautiful. Yeah. I loved Asheville. Well, I, I it's know. it's no uh, it's no David Lynch's Wilmington. That's for sure. Oh, man. Yeah. Where Blue Velvet was found. Among, yeah. uh, man, I think because that's where Dino De Laurentiis uh, built. The that's studio. correct. That the DEG studios uh, was where we did uh, Exorcist 3. And uh, it was quite the time. And we have a lot of good friends who shot there too. Uh, Kay, friends uh, you have there. R- Rindell uh, shot Swamp Thing there, and yep. uh, Gab-, Gab Stanton shot uh, the Summer I Turned Pretty there. I think. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, we're we're, we're appreciative to David uh, David Gerald, who was a good sport, and and thanks to everybody at GalaxyCon. Uh, again, we'll we'll be. Um, this was actually recorded on my phone. It's not as bad as the Harold Livingston, but in the future, uh, we'll be recording everything to the soundboard. So when we do broadcast them, they will be a little uh, little better. So uh, anyway, but uh, that was fun. It was good to get away from the um, uh, uh, the holiday countdown, as great as that was. But uh, that was a lot of real estate on the show. It was a lot great. of weeks. So uh, it's good to dive back into yeah, uh, a lot of buffers. The family has a lot of buffers, but we'll be back uh, next week with an all new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. And our thanks to uh, everyone who makes it possible from Mark Rivera to uh, Peter Holmstrom to uh, Zach Raggetts. And uh, of course, you, the audience that continues to be so supportive uh, by supporting us on TrexpertsPlus.com, our subscriber only uh, uh, support uh, where you can get the incredible uh, bonus uh, podcast. Deck 78, where we talk about Trek and Trek-adjacent subjects more often than not. Um, so thank you for all your support. That's been going great, and it's, it's really helped support the show. So uh, thank you for that. And, of course, you can continue to follow us on social, on Twitter at Inglorious Trek, Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts, and Facebook at Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, while you're at it, why not rate us five stars on your favorite podcast provider, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, those five stars and reviews always help bring new people to the podcast. So support us by supporting the podcast and uh, we'll keep supporting you with these great shows. So until, uh, until I quit, but until, uh, until, <laughs> ne- until next week uh, on behalf of uh, Darren Doctor and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. <laughs>